Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today I'm excited to share a recent conversation that I had over video call with Oklahoma native Jason Bolin who along with his band, The Stragglers, recently released their UFO-inspired and Shooter Jennings-produced concept album, The Light Saw Me. In today's talk, we dig into the origins of Red Dirt music, the state of pop music today, and of course, the writing of The Light Saw Me. This incredibly insightful conversation shines a light on Bob Childers and the growth of the Stillwater music scene, the Desert Oracle radio show based out of Joshua Tree, and much more. I had a great time chatting with Jason, and I'm excited to share our conversation with you right now. Jason, welcome to Diddy TV. Thanks for having me. Jason Boland and the Stragglers, and you're from Oklahoma, but you live in Austin now, right? Uh, roughly, down south, south of there somewhere. <laughs> so you grew up, though, in Stillwater, Oklahoma? I grew up in Hera, but then I went to college in Stillwater. Okay. That's where I tried to go figure out what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And it didn't just, it didn't turn out to be school. Well, what was Harold like growing up? Just as, as middle of the road, middle, small, middle America, small town, as you can imagine, really, it was um, a good place to daydream. And I think a lot of, it made a lot of people that I knew growing up around get pretty creative and find ways to entertain themselves, which is, think what might have helped kick all this off, but it was a nice place to live. It was just, it was very uh, quaint and it was a very slow pace, you know. Well, we're going to get to your new album, The Lights on Me, here in just a few minutes, but um, it's based on a story that's a UFO kind of story, and which is fun. We'll get to that too. But when you were growing up, were you into UFOs or space, outer space or anything like that? I've, I've just always been into anything that's tough to explain. You know, when you look at it and you see all the king's horses and all the king's men try to figure out things that people are saying they're seeing. And the best they come up with is usually something that doesn't explain at least what that person thinks. And uh, I've always been fascinated by that and just what's out there and existence in general. Did you did you play sports or just were you just into music? Yeah, no, I played sports, just a little bit of everything. I was just a one of those kids that tried a little bit of 
whatever they could get into to figure out what they wanted to do with life. They don't, they don't teach people like that very well. I don't think these days there's just not much of a, a liberal arts style to education anymore. And, you know, and they teach into the test and just try to remember something and get through it and get funding and whatever, you know, all the problems we talk about with education, but uh, it was still at a time that, you know, I, I didn't try to go down one hallway too much. There wasn't music. You were just going to be in band. And I did some of that throughout middle school. And then as they do kind of make you pick band or sports a little bit more in high school, not terribly bad in small schools, but that's, you know, through middle school, that's when the, the side project of playing and over at friends' houses and starting playing garages and then starting to write a few songs. And then that whole point of you graduate and what are you going to do? Are you going to get a job? <laughs> are you going to go to school? And I didn't know what I wanted to do. So thankfully, I just wound up where there was a singer-songwriter community in Stillwater, Oklahoma. And the place was known as The Farm. And it's where guys like... Bob Childers and Tom Skinner and the Red Dirt Rangers and Medicine Show and the Great Divide and Mike McClure were getting going. And there was just such a musical scene happening in Stillwater and all these bars that would pay you to come play and all the people from all those small towns and Stillwater included that would come out and watch them and support them night after night. And it was, it was just a really vibrant little singer songwriter seen there for a while still is you know i don't think it'll ever go away but we did see a lot of things change with the telecommunications revolution like what we're doing right here you know you go back into the early 90s and everybody still had to you had to go get your hands on some tickets you know when we formed the band we started a mailing list still and then it was one mailing list ran it went out we got most of them returned because this is a postcard with a stamp right here, <laughs> this with a stamp right here is irregular mail. Oh. And we got most of our mailing, first mailing list back, those wonderful little trying out who you are as a band. <laughs> and figuring out the most but by then, uh, MySpace fired up and mailing lists were over. So what were you playing? Were you playing covers, your own music when you started out with a band or? Both. Uh, both? That, that was another tenant of the Stillwater scene and the red dirt, whatever you want to call it, was what do you have? What do you have to say? And where does it coming from? And who are your inspirations? You know, they, they listened for that. And there was uh, quite a bit of mentoring going on in there. So it was always based about, based on creating something original. So where are the origins of red dirt country? Where does that come from? Uh, There'll, there'll be people that'll throw it out. Okay. It, 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 it had already been coined as a term, like everybody does when they're a little geographical region. But when this whole middle America alternative country is what it really was, scene started to blow up. Well, there's so much of it in Texas that they started calling it Texas country. Well, what is Great Divide? What is Cross Canadian Ragweed? What is Stony LaRue? You know, what are we? And then... So red dirt became more prevalent as a way to say, oh, those are from, they're from Oklahoma. Really is what that, and then now they just call it Texas red dirt. It's a catch all for alternative to top 40 country music. But as a, uh, a synthesis or how it got to be where it was, it's a, it's folk based. It, I, for me, it starts with Woody Guthrie 
And then you have Leon Russell. You've got the jazz tradition from Tulsa and the, the blues that's going on up there. Uh, yeah, I would say Woody Guthrie, Bob Wills, and Leon Russell get you a lot of like the, the birth of Red Dirt and then a lot of, you know, musicians that you never heard of that just played in the bars that inspired who knows. I know you mentioned the farm as a place where everyone kind of got together and jam. Was that a really critical piece of this puzzle where there was a real jam scene or the ability to collaborate with other artists in Stillwater? Yeah. And that's, I think that's just for everywhere and every, every group of people, they need a place to get together. And that was it at the time. It, while I lived there, it changed to our place and it was the yellow house and it was just always something happening at the yellow house, either a jam or a cookout or a party or, you know, you never know. But that was the home base. I mean, several of those people that I mentioned lived there. So it was, it was, if it wouldn't have been there, it probably would have been somewhere else, but that, that place needed to be. And it, it definitely served a purpose within the, for the people that I knew out there, you know, let them get out of town and uh, make some noise. So the college is there. It's, it's Oklahoma state, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's lots of probably venues and bars that, that are around the college. Was there a bit built in audience then for live music because of that? Yeah, that's, that's what I'm saying. It, but still, they didn't go to dance clubs, you know, just because they're there. They still have so many things they could do. They could just do all on campus events. It was there was something special about the folks from that part of Oklahoma that loved to watch live music, it seemed. And that and they would even come from the small towns around and they would, they would come out every night, but there was a tradition of live music at Willie's, Eskimo Joe's, you know, and then when the Wormy Dogs showed up, they started, they would do live music four, four nights a week, a lot of times, Willie's every night, and then several other bars really stepped in line with that mentality and the people just kept coming and that everybody was so proud that something was going on from where they were from and bands, more and more bands just started popping up just the way you would think any, uh, anytime you've seen it happen on a more national level, like what happened in Seattle or LA or those cities that it always happens in, it was, it was going on here, just a smaller, uh, smaller size. Well, I know folks like Steve Ripley, Jim LaFave, is that how you pronounce his name? Or Bob Childers, they were all before you, but really weren't from there, they moved there. So there must have been a scene going on that made them think, hey, if I move there, there's a, there's a music scene for me and um, something cool going on there. I mean, Garth Brooks played Willie's, or I think once, you know, had a standing gig at Willie's. Uh, Bob Childers, you know, helped Garth Brooks meet a lot of the people out in Nashville the first time. Um, I think might've stayed at his place when Bob would go between Nashville and work on songwriting. And, but he's, Bob said he would always end up back in Stillwater because there was, there was some, there was a spring there. He said there was a spring of energy, something about that place that always made him feel alive and the people around him felt alive. And he seemed to, said he seemed to write a lot of good songs while he was around there. So if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I believe he said he would always end up back in Stillwater and he did. That's where, 
he passed on. Well, and I would say that Texas country, red dirt country, um, they're sort of outside of the Nashville country. So I would think that if you're one of those artists and you're, that's going to be your passion in your life, you might think I need to go back there because it's going to be different than Nashville, I would think. Yeah, it's a, you know, I think I've been having this question a lot with this album coming up is what do you, what did you think people were going to think when they heard it? And that's, that's the, the big question. Every songwriter or anybody that does anything that you want to even consider art. I have a loose version. Like I think people that cook food are artists, you know, so, um, of wondering how it's going to be received. And you can't say, well, I don't even care. Well, then don't put it out. Why do you even care for people to hear it then? If you don't care for it to be a connection out there, like food, I don't care what they think if it tastes. But you also don't, you can't sit down and just think, oh, well, then let's, let's play to a musical listener that may or may not really be schooled in music or whatever, you know, just... And then what you do, you tend to get down to where people like things that hang around, that have few chord changes, have a few different beats that really hit your heart. And then it just keeps getting distilled down and like, we'll sell this faster and faster. Now you're where we are. Now you're just auto-tuned and beats that are guaranteed to set off something in you biologically. And, you know, just these pop tune after pop tune that you can't tell the difference. And I'm not saying that they'll say, uh, see, there you are. You're old and this is new. No, you go back to like doo-wop bands. Once a doo-wop hit happened, then there was a bunch of it out there that wasn't any better than the next one. And you can't tell those songs apart either. Every, every genre goes through their watering down versus distillation. So I... Uh, That's a very good point because it seems like what happens is someone is the innovator and then everyone tries to be just like them because they think that's what sells. Mm -hmm. And that ultimately waters down the entire genre because you're less about the art than you are about just trying to create something that's going to sell. And, yes. and, to, and to your point, which is um, someone says they don't care. Well, if you, if you don't care at all, then like you said, why even create the art? And so on the one mm -hmm. hand... I think people say that to themselves because uh, they don't want to be hurt if people don't like it. But you have to take risks, especially in art, I, I think. Yeah. Um, another thing that factors in, I, I believe, is I call it the dad's records phenomenon of my dad had a sack of records that I mean, I didn't just go kicking through. There was a learning curve, though. You know, there was an, an initiation. There's no longer a learning curve or initiation. It's an I, it's a iTunes gift card or just or go stream for free. And look at a children's menu at a restaurant. Nothing wrong with it. I like chicken nuggets. I like hot dogs. I like it all. But <clears throat> it seems very simple and it's catered to an underdeveloped palate. Just in music's the same way. And if you give somebody the choice that doesn't really become highly involved, like they're going to be a doctor with their life. It's not like they have to know this about music. But that kid as a child, if given the chance, 
will do what's just pleasing a lot of times. That is a certain beat and a staying around the one chord. And they will sit there and just hit it until you hear what you hear when you walk into a young geared department store and they're all singing along. And you think, how do you know this song from the last one? And then they say, you're old. I read, I read this article that was uh, put out, I believe it was by Harvard, I can't remember, but they were doing a study on infants on, this, on dissonant sounds. And even as a small baby, if you hear a really pleasant sound, they'll smile. But if it's a dissonant sound, they, they will wince. And so they had music from India, which really focuses a lot on that dissonant sound. And tones, yeah. yeah, different kinds of tones. And so the babies would wince, but by the time they were a little bit older, they weren't. And their ears started to be trained to that, that sound and they could even sing those sounds back. It was pretty fascinating because it wasn't, the initial reaction was something completely different. But like you're saying, it's, it, can get, it can get watered down to, um, some, to an untrained ear. But uh, from an artist standpoint, do you feel like each project that you do needs to be different creatively for you or do you continue on in the same vein? There has to be something that other, otherwise, why do it? Why do the exact same thing? But that, what usually takes care of that is just the passage of time. If you stay geared up in what you do, which is music, they're always, they're always people are always fascinated with what, the person that plays music, like if you're country like, well then what country stuff do you do? Or if it's if it's hip hop, tell me how urban, you know, or if it's if it's if you're a young rock and roller, how how wild and strung out on you. And you know, it's just like people want this version of this music to put with it. If you write music, produce music, play music and tour it, and are at all of a music fan at all, guess what you do with most of your time? It's all music somehow within the production, doing this, put, you know, putting an album out there and talking to people about it. And then everybody always asks me, well, so what do you do in your spare time? I go watch bands. I went and saw the Super Suckers on Halloween. My wife and I went up to Austin and live music still gets us out of the house. So when did you move to Austin and was it because of the music scene that was there that you did so? Yeah, it was, it was weird. I was still in Oklahoma and all my guys moved to Texas. I'm like, okay, I guess we're moving to Texas. So I moved <laughs> down there and uh, just been kicking around here ever since. I still have family in Oklahoma and a place up in Oklahoma. So we're back and forth a lot too, but uh, this is, this has been a, a great stay. I like it down here. So when did you put out your first album? 2000, we recorded it in October of 99, and put it out in January 2000. And how did things change after that? How, just like life, mm -hmm. just uh, the recording process of putting out records? Uh, just life, um, you know, what happened post your first album and, and was there a sort of a bump and did you go out on tour and? Well, yeah, um, we were already starting to play any place that let us in the door. And I had guys that had jobs and a couple people that were already ready to go see where this went. We just started playing every place we could, writing for the next album and going as fast as we could. <laughs> I mean, that was, 
that was what a lot of people did. We just hit the road and stayed out there. And uh, we took a, a breath, I guess, you know, a few years in. And once we moved to a tour bus, that, that tends to help at least your long runs and getting out there be not such a, a battle. It got busy and hectic, but that's exactly what you signed on for. And there's no, there's no knowledge of the future because you don't know what your next album is going to be. And the people that always, uh, you know, keep you at task and hold your feet to the fire are the fans. If they ever stop showing up, you're done because no bars going to book you and the bar owners aren't not the way we do it for just because they like you. So how has the last year and a half been for you when artists couldn't really tour? What were you doing during that time? Like everybody learned to bake bread, <laughs> fix everything around here that I swore I was gonna do from the day we moved into this place. Like from a limb, just saw a limb that was hanging outside and it's one of those. <laughs> I got that limb down, I got to get in the fight, you know, go cut those limbs down, cooked a lot charcoaled a lot. I just got done charcoaling right now. I, uh, I'm one of those anti-propainers. Yeah. Well, charcoal has the best flavor. Hands down. I can't even go into it. I love King of the Hill, but we have serious disagreements on propane versus charcoal. <laughs> charcoal is the way food is supposed to taste when done right. Well, of course he sells propane. So he kind of has to be in the propane can. Give him a slide. He's just doing what, just getting by like the rest of us. Got a mortgage. I know. We, we know that charcoal is better. Oh yeah. Hands down. Charcoal is the best. Charcoal is absolutely the best. So let's talk about the lights saw me. And it's a bit of a concept album. And I wanted you to tell me kind of in your own words, because it's based on a UFO story and tell me a little bit about the story. Well, that story is, it does grab attention and it gave it a grand scheme and it gave it something different. But when you really hear the album, it's a love story and it's an existential crisis. It's about every album we've ever done. You know, it, who, the, the track one is the Carney Barker announcing to everybody, have you heard this story? Have you heard these other stories? And we allude to like another incident. And then we ask questions like, is love real? Is it imagination and cooked up in your brain? Do things, you know, go on, whatever, leave it at that. Then you enter the narrative of the song, the light saw me where a human witnesses something tells people about it. And then in the next track becomes persecuted for it. That's the tornado in the full, which is a little more a metaphoric track, but it's still, it's, the narrative of them coming and telling him to shut up and all that. And then he enters his soliloquy phase of here for you, of all of this burden crashing down on him. And then we have that little piece with the narrator, Ken Lane from Desert Oracle Radio. He does the intro and two narrations in the middle of the transmission out when he leaves and then the transition in. And we always thought of, him leaving a roughly 1890, you know, and then coming back about 1990. And he lands and he's confused and he goes looking for his wife and he hears a song through a window and that's her being channeled through this other gal singing. 
and he realizes that there is consciousness and there is a connectivity throughout the universe and he walks on off through the desert and he might get into other adventures later, who knows? But we thought it was a interesting way to do it. Um, the side one is from the past and then you flip it and we changed drum kits and just changed the whole vibe of it and made it in his relative future. Is it harder or easier to do a concept album where there's a theme throughout and you have to kind of stick with that theme? This one in this time and the, the fact that we started it pre-COVID so it wasn't tainted by all that lens was, I'll say, easier because it gave such a focus. You know, once you hear the grand story, the rest is just like a movie in your mind. If you got a character, he has a conflict and he resolves it and he makes a change. The characters change somehow through the journey. I mean, so once it became about this, this wondering of the basics of human existence, like who are we, what are we doing here? The questions that every, every human asks himself at some point. And then a love story, uh, we were off to the races. It came together quickly, I, I thought. Well, I read a little bit about where this idea came from, and I read about Desert Oracle Radio. What is that exactly? It's a radio show that broadcasts out of Joshua Tree, and it's hosted by a guy named Ken Lane, and he's a writer and desert enthusiast and conservationist, and he's a, just an interesting cat, and I really like his show, and it came around the time when... We were, we were sitting around here staring at the sky a lot and watching a lot of different extraterrestrial documentaries and it just, it made sense. Once, once, uh, once the song, the light saw me became the light saw me and I had been kicking around ideas for the terrifying nature and then the terrifying nature retrofit fit to become the questions posed by the rest of the album, you know, and then it was, and I did the the ballad being gone and I thought I need something when he finds her. And for some reason, we always talk about doing a Bob Childers album, song on every album. I thought, hmm, what if there's a Bob? Restless Spirits is one of his better known songs and more covered, I would say, but we'd never done it. And I thought, wow, it fits too perfectly. And Bob had us, one of his sayings was uh, borderline cosmic and it was, Borderline Cosmic, how that song fit into the rest of the... And then uh, Grant Tracy, a bass player and another co-founding member, had written a song about the future. And the first line is, when we finally reached the future, it was the same as the past. I thought, man, that might fit in too. So we laid that one in there and it just... We started rehearsing and then COVID hit and we all went home and said, keep it right here. So this is all feeding in. So we're coming full circle here, Jason, because this is coming right back to your childhood where you like things that are mysterious. Yeah, uh, always keep you guessing, keep it, uh, keep it interesting. So who, who or where did you record the album? Uh, North Hollywood, L.A. And who produced it? Shooter Jennings. What did Shooter bring to the table when you, you've actually worked with him before though, right? Yeah, and that's, that's part of it on, on this. I mean, of course he was right for it, but part of it is knowing someone's gonna be right for it or have, at least having an idea. We'd worked with him before, so, and that project was 
one of the stipulations we were going tape to tape, no computers. And that was fun. So knew he wouldn't care if there was anything strange or challenging. He had already done his own concept records and, and he's not afraid to get out there. And he's just a good hang of all the people I've ever met in this entire mess of a business. Shooter is the most real, kind-hearted, wonderful person. I don't have enough good things to say about him. Well, we love him here at Diddy, too. And, uh, and uh, we know how talented he is. I mean, obviously, he's put out some amazing music. And um, so what do you hope your fans take from this album? I always... I look for music that just makes me feel alive. And I think that's when I connect with something and that's sonically and lyrically for me. So I always think people hear something that expands something more than just the, the clap along and sing along. Otherwise we'd be writing about dirt roads and blue jeans and we'd be doing the same old songs. And I, I like songs about that too. You know, <laughs> we have, Every time I always start talking about heady stuff, I can always hear somebody, me in the back of my mind saying, go listen to some of your old catalog, dude. And I, I take that, that's who I was back then too. And we evolve and we move on and we don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. I think folk music can have lighthearted songs, fun songs, funny songs, and heavy songs, and socially conscious songs, and party songs, whatever. It's a, uh, that's what, America and American music, American music is Western music is the big gumbo. It's big mixed together pot. It is a big mixed together pot. And you're about to play the Grand Old Opry, I hear. Yeah. Yeah. We got invited out to do that. That's exciting. Uh, is this your first time playing the Opry or have you played before? Yes. yes. Well, it is one of those amazing rooms to play in. And of course, uh, almost anyone who goes there is a lover of live music. And yeah. will you be playing songs off your new album? I think we might play one. I think you get two or three, which is weird. It's like, just tell me two or three, man. I don't, it's cool. Because <laughs> then, then, then I'm thinking, well, okay, do you do this one? Do you do the ballad? Do you what? So I don't know. We might do the lights on me. Just fire off with that. And then who knows? I'm still kicking around which, which ones we're going to do. So the album's coming out soon, and then you'll be touring after that, I assume. December 3rd is the album, and then we'll tour some of the east and uh, upper, like, you know, up towards the lakes more and out east, and then come home for Christmas, and then January we'll drop another single, and um, next year we'll hit it hard. Well, it's funny. Uh, you turned me on to Desert Oracle Radio. I, I didn't know what that was, and I'm, I'm going to go out and I'm going to check out uh, their broadcast, but I noticed they were going to be live in Memphis here in oh, yeah. December. He's so on tour right now. Yeah. His book Might and have I, to check him out. We caught him. He hadn't been back to LA since the pandemic. And I, I just, for some reason, we needed a narration. I thought, what are the odds? I emailed <laughs> And we had had a couple of little correspondence before just from listening to his podcast and sending him gift baskets and stuff. But he said, you know what, I'm going to be in town Tuesday night and I'm leaving Wednesday morning. And that was when we needed him. He happened to be coming into town. So he walked in there and one took it all. It was crazy. We just started playing the music and he starts. We said it's about light and transformative experiences with light. And 
he came in there and just burned everybody's face off and just perfect subject matter and that 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 dry baritone delivery of his it's just it was perfect there's definitely something mysterious about the desert and there's nothing like a desert sunset so it's yeah. just it's just beautiful well we wish you the best of luck jason with the new well, album and hopefully you get come by memphis at some point and if so let us know we'd love to have you stop by diddy tv all right thank you for having me We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Jason Bolin. If you're interested in learning more about Jason and the Stragglers, want to order a copy of their Shooter Jennings produced album, The Light Saw Me, or find tour dates near you, be sure to head over to thestragglers.com. And remember, you can visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and download the official free Diddy TV app from your app store today.